0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan rodzeski here with Greg Baer, and we're the co-authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a
1: podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change.
0: On today's episode, we're talking with Melissa Butler, an author, educator, poet, and a self-described noticer of small things. She's the director of the Children's Innovation Project, the founder of the Reimagining Project, and she works with educators, families, artists, and others to nurture learning rooted in wonder, play, and delight. Her latest book, In a Button, is a picture book about the awe and wisdom of wonder itself. Melissa Butler, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow.
2: Thank you, Ryan and Greg. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Oh, well, we're delighted to have you. So, Melissa, let's
1: start with In a Button. It's a picture book written by you and illustrated by Nicholas Homan. And it's about, as our listeners might have guessed, a button. But it's also so much more than that. It's also about noticing and wondering, and ultimately you write about readers themselves. So what does that mean? And how can a book about something as simple as a button encompass so much more?
2: The first thing is how can a button not encompass so much more. In my experience playing with buttons and watching others play with buttons, there's such an opening of connection that I see people find in themselves. I know there's something in the smallness of a button that definitely helps us all see more. So the seeing of our seeing, the noticing of our noticing expands when you are appreciating and being with something small like a button. And it's also simplicity, which may or may not be small. But in the simplicity of something like a button, it's not only what we can see, it's who we get to be. There's not the noise of other people's framings of things or other people's narratives on the material. It's just you with a button. I think we can be more of ourselves and bring all who you are to the experience.
0: Melissa, so much of your work is rooted in this idea of noticing and in noticing small things in particular. You write that noticing is finding what's there, what's not there, what may have been there, and what might be dreamed there. Can you tell us about how noticing became so essential to your approach as an educator?
2: It parallels how noticing has become so essential to me and my own living. It's like noticing is alive itself and has an energy. So much of my formative life was with children, particularly young children. And from noticing children and from bringing my attention and observation to their learning and from listening to how they make sense of things, from playing alongside children, it has allowed me to see all that happens when you give a child a particular set of materials over another particular set of materials. Like what happens when there's lots of materials? What happens when there's one? What happens when there's a narrow prompt? What happens when there's an open-ended prompt? And these create different kinds of learning. That helped me notice what it means or might mean for children to come to know themselves as learners and the kind of experiences that best help them get in touch with and become learners. It's through slowness, through simplicity of material, and through a focus on trusting that noticing is enough as it is, and it will expand if you allow it.
1: Melissa, you're using words like slowness and notice that just fly in the face of the frenetic energy of life all around us and the blur to which we both contribute and that we allow to pass us by. I want to dig more into this idea of noticing and your noticing approach and how you've brought that to learners. Some of those learners are teachers as you work with pre-service candidates or current classroom teachers in their own approaches in their classrooms. Sometimes you're working directly with students in a classroom or young people in an out of school time setting. So what are the things you're doing to help them to acquire a noticing approach? And what changes in a learner once he or she begins to notice?
2: Well, inside the simplicity, there is a depth. What I love about this approach is how it's endlessly curious for me. It's an endless delight of wonder. Specifically with children, I have learned to trust that offering one simple material and defining the parameters as let's play or let's explore or what do you notice? I know that's enough. Now, what I've grown into in the last decade or so is, okay, how do I support others to do this? because it sounds lovely and it seems simple enough. A lot of it has to do with who we are and what we bring to our learning. So when I work with schools, educators, adults, families, I work kind of in two ways. One way is to do some noticing work with the adults themselves, to give them an experience of noticing so they can begin to see their own dispositions, to see what they bring to their own learning. Learning is caught, not taught, as Fred Rogers said. We need educators, parents, adults, to see what they are implicitly teaching when they're around children. And then the other way I work with adults is to support them in their process of trusting themselves more. Because you know what to do You just don't maybe trust yourself or have lost your way somehow, because you're right. It's noisy out there. We can't be afraid of boredom. Educators will often say, well, I did this, but children weren't interested. They didn't know what to do. When I don't give them a narrow prompt and tell them what to do, they just sit there. Well, I know that if there is a child who doesn't know what to do, what they need is more experience not knowing what to do. However, that's a challenge (laughs) for today's educator when, like you said, there's all these other expectations and you might not feel comfortable. Someone comes into your classroom and you have a whole class of children who don't know what to do. It's almost like you're not doing what you need to do to engage children. But what we need to do is cultivate spaces so children understand deeply how to engage themselves in their own learning and that takes time it's not a one-time workshop that does that but it's possible and it's empowering for the children certainly because children learn that they can bring more of their feelings to their learning that they can feel bored and it's not the end of the world they express more they find new and nuanced interests and teachers eventually find and parents eventually find, oh, I could do that. It's almost like getting out of your own way. You need to stop doing and allow more and trust more.
1: This is Greg Bear along with Ryan Radzeski. We're talking with Melissa Butler, an educator and author whose most recent book, In a Button, takes readers on a journey of noticing and wondering.
0: Melissa, I wanna talk more about that idea of taking time and slowness because we live, as you know, in an era of fast information. You know, if I don't know something, I can pull out my phone and I can find what the answer is to just about any question in seconds. And I think we expect things to move that fast, right? And to a certain extent, that's reflected in our learning experiences. We take time tests and we juggle a dozen deadlines at once. Our primary objective so much of the time is to get things done and to get things done fast. But you, you're an advocate for slowing down, for thinking about things not just as tasks to be done, but as opportunities for depth and exploration and and contemplation. So if you put a button in front of me, suddenly it's not something that I can look up on my phone. It's something I need to take in on my own terms. And I would imagine that for some people, that sort of slowing down, that sort of taking of time probably feels unnatural or maybe even uncomfortable at first. Can you talk about what are some of the things you do to help learners begin to let go of that deep-seated need to move quickly and to get things done?
2: Part of the rationale for offering a single button or a single screw or spring or a pile of mud is to watch and be alongside a child as they explore and to mirror, support, listen in to their process of engagement. And so when anyone engages with something and feels something like, oh, I don't like this, or this is boring, or I'm done, or this is too slow for me, I feel uncomfortable, like, whatever, the work is to not avoid that, to not push the feeling away, to not scaffold the learning so the learner doesn't ever feel the feeling. It's to actually invite the feeling because then you have something to engage with and you can wonder about it. Hmm, wow, where'd that come from? I wonder why. I wonder if there's a need underneath that, that as whole human beings, we are full of all of these feelings and sensations and all all of it. And that the work is to bring that wholeness to all we do. So if you have a whole bunch of students who are bored or you have teachers who are upset about something, okay, engage there, right? Don't try to solve it for them. Don't try to smooth it over. That's the good stuff. That's a challenge. And it's also such a beautiful opportunity. And it points to why slowing down is so important. Slowing down is not something to do just one time in a day. You know, so much of... Innovation in learning has had us create innovations and new kinds of practices on the side. Slowing down in its simplicity is the most radical of shifts because it reveals what we don't need. We don't need time tests, who said so? We don't need schedules, we don't need that. There's so much of what exists in learning that we don't need. And slowing down invites the beauty, the connection, the joy, the love, the artistry, the expression. It invites the question, why do we learn? Why do we live?
1: Melissa, I had the distinct privilege of visiting your classroom in the Pittsburgh Public Schools on multiple occasions. And I want our listeners to know that this is a master educator with decades of experience in a classroom. And to visit your classroom was to watch a master at work. I mean, to witness young kindergartners working together, engaging together, asking really profound questions, seeing that learning light up in what were really, truly magical ways. And as a teacher, you co-founded something called the Children's Innovation Project. Now, innovation is one of those buzzy words that gets thrown around and, you know, it often doesn't mean a whole lot to a whole lot of people. And you use a very specific definition that we love and cite all the time. That is, you describe innovation as finding something new inside something known. Finding something new inside something known. So how did you support innovation in the Children's Innovation Project? And why is it important to give young children that opportunity to innovate?
2: I'm so glad that we defined innovation as that so long ago because What's delightful to me is that that definition, finding something new inside something known, is a definition for innovation, it's a definition for curiosity, it's a definition for learning, it's a definition for living, <laughs> it's a definition for all of these things. And. Children's Innovation Project was named and grew in a particular context and has a particular set of materials and is specifically interested in technological thinking systems, the landscape of analog digital, play with ordinary materials. And it's particularly helpful if you want children to better see, talk about, and understand the functions behind all of these frames and forms that they use that often hide their functions, because we want those little forms of devices that we can easily put in our ears or in our pockets. And so Children's Innovation Project helps with content development around how you can help people better understand what works inside what can't be seen. So in a way, everything that I've talked about before now, it's the same kind of learning. It's the same kind of noticing and wondering. And a lot of my work with Children's Innovation Project now is advising others or supporting curriculum development with growing depth of learning or accessibility for all. Cause we have a lot of innovation and a lot of really beautiful, good learning going on in schools. And often there's a lot, there's a lot of choices and a lot of stuff. The approach of children's innovation project helps organizations, administrators, teachers, narrow it down and see the simplicity inside that and offer something that better invites the question, finding something new inside something known. If you're always offering something new and something flashy and something else, you never have the opportunity to sit with something you think, you know, and go in further. Just to answer your second question, why is it important that children innovate? Unless you can sit with something you think, you know, and find something new, you're not going to ever be able to grow your own agency as a learner. It's always gonna be provided for you. And you're never going to be able to express your full self in your learning.
1: Knowing the work that you do with the Fred Rogers Center with the Educator's Neighborhood, Fred reminded us that learners, especially our young learners, they don't start with the new. They start with something familiar. We all remember that episode of the Crayon Factory Right? And in the crayon factory, we learned how machines work. But Fred didn't begin that program by taking us immediately to the factory and showing us how machines work. He started with a crayon. He started with something new, something familiar, and then led us to a place that we might
0: learn something different. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Melissa, you taught public schools for more than 20 years. You've been innovating with and alongside children since 2010. You've worked with countless educators and countless students over the years. And we're curious, How has your commitment to noticing changed you as a person? How do you live differently now that noticing has become so central to your identity as a person and as an educator?
2: We started with buttons. I love buttons. I often say everything I need to know, I can find in a button. And in a way, I could replace the word button with noticing because the approach of noticing is everything to me and continuously brings me the gift of myself, of finding something new in myself, finding more to unlearn, allow my process and my expression to come more deeply from my heart, from who I am and why I'm here, Noticing has been my biggest gift for allowing me to release so many separations that I held for so long, many of which were taught to me from being inside schools for so long. And I couldn't even see how separated I was from myself until I left the institutions of schools. Right around the time In a Button came out, I wrote How to Notice. And How to Notice is a book that I wrote very much from my heart for other adults who might want to explore noticing for their life. And I shared the process of noticing for me what I do in noticing and why it matters for my everyday life and why I think it can be helpful, might be helpful for others.
0: How can people find out more about the work you're doing?
2: The easiest way would be go to my website, which is MelissaAButler.com. And I have a noticing matters blog that I publish once a month. You can join my newsletter. My Instagram and Twitter connections are there, and there are pages for my books and other ways you can connect and maybe play. I like to work with others who want to play and rejoice and create beautiful things for the world.
1: Well, in that spirit of playfulness, Melissa, we have just one more question for you before we go. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner?
2: I think for adults, it's forgiveness Hmm. of themselves. And the next time you notice yourself saying, oh, I should have done, or, oh, why didn't I? All of that, in that moment, pause and send yourself love. That is big. It's bigger than you think it is. And doing that once heals so much and invites the slowness in. Sometimes, if you start with the slow, you push it in. And then you create a condition where you're mad at yourself for not having it. And you judge yourself for being too fast or caring about productivity or da 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 da. The key is to forgive yourself and love yourself always anyway.
0: Thanks again to Melissa Butler, an author, educator, poet, and a noticer. Her latest book, In a Button, came out in November.
2: Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning a Pittsburgh-based network of people and organizations that ignite engaging, relevant, and equitable learning practices in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. Learn more at remakelearning.org tomorrow.